The geeks are back and we have a very special guest today. We're going to talk about learning on the job. We're going to talk about apprenticeship. We're going to talk about learning through gaming. All of that coming up on the Learning Geeks podcast coming up now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Learning Geeks podcast. This is Bob Gerard from sunny Santa Monica, California. This time we're all separate. Last couple of times we've been together live, but this time we're separate. We're, we're separate, but, but still live. We are. We're live. We're together. Uh, data coming from St. Charles. Yep. That was Dana you just heard. Uh, we've got Jake Gittleson coming from wherever in Illinois you live. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere cold south of Chicago. <laughs> That's right. And our very special guest that I promised, uh, coming from Santa Cruz, California, otherwise known as Planet Endor, yes. my good friend, Mr. Tad Lechman. Tad, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, we are super glad to have you here. And so let me introduce Tad very, you know, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, but I'll just say this is um, Tad and I, we our careers crossed paths probably three three and a half years ago or so. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So uh, Tad and I worked together at a game company a while back. Um, but Tad has a fascinating curriculum vitae. Um, and it just opens up all sorts of things that we could potentially talk about. I mean, this could be an hours long podcast. It's not going to be an hours long podcast because <laughs> we heard your feedback that you wanted shorter. So we're going to keep it closer to half an hour. Um, Tad, why don't you give us like the 30 second rundown of your life history? Yes. So I am um, a weird person who bounces back and forth between academic world and uh, entertainment creation worlds. So I started out um, doing visual effects for Industrial Light and Magic as an artist and as a supervisor, switched to teaching visual effects and animation uh, at, uh, in higher education. And then got, after years of doing that, got pulled back to Lucasfilm to work in Singapore, heading up training and development for uh, the studio that they had in Southeast Asia, and then back to education. So I kind of flip back and forth. Um, my primary interest is artists and creative folks and how they learn to create and how they share what they do with other folks. And my, you know, as we'll probably talk about my mission at Lucasfilm in Singapore was basically help us make the studio bigger and help us make what we haven't been able to find. So you guys can imagine that with all this discussion of Lucasfilm and industrial light and magic and all that kind of stuff <laughs> that Jake and I just want to talk about Star Wars. So <laughs> yeah, here's what we're going to do. So here, yeah. So here's what we're going to do is we're going to focus on learning stuff for the proper podcast over the next half hour or so. And then like we did last time, we're going to record a Star Wars after show where we are going to nerd out and you can optionally join us. So you're welcome to stick around for that. That'll be another episode you can download. But right now we want to dive in and we want to talk about Tad's learning stuff because that's why most of you are here. So uh, so it's great. Again, Tad, thank you so much for being here. And you know where I wanted to start with you, I have heard you tell the story, and I think I recounted it on one of our earlier Learning Geeks podcasts, but very badly, um, about how you learned 3D modeling. I think mm. there's just a really interesting story there uh, that pertains to how people learn and how we learn on the job and everything. Yeah. So maybe you could start up there and we'll we'll go from there. 
Yeah, and I think we, it's a good starting point. So we can we can go backwards and forwards in time and see where there's some threads that line up really nicely. So I was working in industrial light and magic. Um, I was at a transition point. Uh, I had started there as uh, as basically as uh, a Mac tech. I was ILM's Mac guy, so I was a system administrator for Macintosh stuff. But I had a background before that making models and doing visual effects. So I was transitioning into a more of an artist role, um, and I was helping a team called the Rebel Mac Unit. I have a history of also working for groups within organizations have really cool names. So um, <laughs> the Rebel Mac Unit was basically a small team that was, unlike the rest of ILM, was using off-the-shelf software and computers to make visual effects. So timing-wise, for you just to get a sense of when we're talking about, I have to relate everything to what movies we were working on. Um, special edition of Star Wars, Empire and Jedi were in production, Men in Black, uh, Star Trek First Contact. So we're talking, you know, late, late 90s. And there was no place to learn how to do 3D computer graphics uh, in a school. Most of the folks who were doing that at ILM at this point were all computer science folks who learned the art part, who learned the cinema part. And so learning on the job, I was going to be working with and supporting a group of artists who already knew how to do 3D modeling and animation and rendering. And I wanted to learn that too. I wanted to take my skills to a level where I could actually start working on productions. And so I worked on my own a little bit. I made, you know, I modeled Tintin's rocket from the Tintin Hergé comics and got to basically just hit a point where I'm like, I don't know what is useful. I don't know what would be good to uh, pursue as a as a project to learn how to do 3D modeling. And I'd made models in the real world and just needed to learn how to do what I knew how to do, but on the computer. And so uh, I was working at that point with John Knoll, who is now, I think he's the creative director of ILM. At that point, he was a visual effects supervisor. Um, you know, side note, John and his brother wrote Photoshop. Um, so as a hobby, as a hobby. To, yes. Yeah. Um, side hustle. And also John's a huge nerd and he's, uh, I learned so much from him. And so I went to him in his office and I said, Hey, so I'm learning, uh, form Z and I'm learning 3d modeling and I'd love to make something that might be useful coming up. Is there anything coming up that might be useful? And the subtext in everything I was asking him was I knew he was going to be one of the visual effects supervisors on episode one of Star Wars. And I knew that was happening. And I was absolutely fishing for, is there a thing I could do that could be useful on Star Wars? And <laughs> he answered exactly as I hoped he had with both something useful and a spoiler, which I was really excited about. He said, uh, sure. Why don't you model R2-D2? Because we might need that later. I was like, oh, I think I just got confirmation that R2-D2 is in episode one. So I had, of course, sitting at home, the Star Wars art book. I had the Star Wars blueprints. I had lots of reference just at my house of R2-D2 if I was going to build him as a 3D model. And so I brought all this stuff in and I went to John's office and I said, okay, so here's what I have from home. Do you think, like, should I reach out to the archive and get more reference on R2-D2? And John paused for a minute and looked at me. And he looked at the stack of nerd stuff I had in front of me. He's like, he said, yes, we can talk to the, to the archive, but 
probably the best thing would be for you to just walk over to the C theater where there is an R2-D2 sitting in the front of the theater that you can photograph and take measurements of. He's just, use the, use the real one. There's a real one out there that you can use. So, we, so weirdly, I've spent a lot of time with my hands on R2-D2. Uh, boy, that sounded creepy. Um, <laughs> unintentionally creepy. Um, and so I started working on it and I took measurements and got my, you know, I had a, a pair of calipers and would keep building and building and building, revising, going back. Also, something that was incredibly important for visual effects, unlike a lot of other 3D modeling, was um, I needed to make sure it was accurate down to, you know, let's say a quarter of a centimeter. Um, it had to be pretty accurate and uh, the, the proportions were wrong. Everybody knows what R2-D2 looks like. So it was um, mm. really challenging. This was, you know, even if it just had the potentiality of being used, I knew it would be useful. And so I worked really hard on it and it did give me an extra kind of push to take my craft further, to really be accurate. And also, you know, to learn how to work faster as well, because being around all these uh, artists, I knew that being able to work quickly was also as important as being able to work accurately. Um, and it was, so it was, it was pretty amazing. And then that model, um, you know, very quickly, John said, yeah, we're, so we're going to need that, which added additional pressure. And he said, we're going to need it for episode one. And so I was making my R2-D2 basically just to be used for this kind of rough draft planning thing. It had to be proportionally correct, but you know, it wasn't going to be on screen. It just needed to be something that we'd use for planning, which was good enough for me. That was exciting. And it was indeed used for that purpose. And I moved on to do other things and I made more complicated models and learned animation and other things on the job. But mostly that was just for me learning to say yes to anything someone asked me to do and then figuring out how to do it. Um, which turned out to be an incredibly useful kind of learning tactic for me that has served me really well. And it turns out I had been doing my whole life and I just never really thought about it. So, so Ted, so how, so when you say you learned how to do that, mm. you just kind of tackled it. So what was kind of the process of that? It sounds like you were just, you, you kind of dove in, you tried it out, but how were you getting feedback? How were you really yeah. knowing that you were progressing? So that's a really good question. So the, the key, so the key kind of pieces of this self self training, and it wasn't really self training because, as you mentioned, I had a lot of folks to leverage for feedback. Um, I had, you know, this was back in the days too of really big, thick software manuals, which I've always liked reading for pleasure. Um, so there was a fairly dense book that I could start with to get the overview of how the software worked. Um, really often for me, it was searching for. I know how I would do this if I was making this model in the real world. What are the tools I need to do that in digital world? So I would read, but then also I had two things that were very helpful to me. One was I had some existing models that I could take apart and look at. So I could open up other people's models of X-Wings, Snowspeeders, uh, other things. There were, you know, I could open up John, let me look at his uh, X-Wing model, which had the head and upper shoulders of R2-D2 in it. And so I can look how he approached it and then ask him, so this is a screen ready version. So what do I need to keep out my, my, my eyes open for? What are the things that are and are important about like, what do you need to model? What can actually be part of a texture? So I had those models to look at as an example. And then I was sitting around incredibly talented folks. And I found this universally true, everyone at ILM, if you sat down with an earnest question and it didn't take too much time away from what people were doing for work, 
people were so free with their time. So I had folks kind of keeping me on the right path, uh, occasionally letting me go down the wrong path so that I would learn something, which was kind of interesting. Um, but, and it was every day I could show one or two or three different people what I was working on in progress um, or just walk over and say like, I'm having a really hard time generating this shape. So we were a new, to, new team doing new type of production um, coming from all different places, all different backgrounds. We all were in one big giant room, but we were all there. And so we could talk and we could share things and we were all working on very similar types of work. Um, so there was a constant feedback between each other, everything we learned. And there's also very much a culture of, you know, a lot of our work happened overnight while we weren't there because we would set renders off uh, at night and then the computer would chew on them and output images, uh, final images of what we were working on. So there was a little, a morning debrief. I think that grew out of the general culture of filmmaking and visual effects and animation uh, in particular, which is dailies. You start your day if you're working on a show in a screening room with, you know, 20 to 50 other people reviewing your work on a giant screen, listening to feedback from the supervisors and your peers. And you're expected to give that feedback as well. And Bob, like you just mentioned, like that's another place where like everybody's learning from everyone's experience all the time. And that right, was just the right. normal part of that workplace. So, Tad, I, I, I'm, as I'm listening to this, I'm trying to extract... Uh, what might be termed the keys to successful learning on the job. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to list several things and, you know, correct me if I'm misinterpreted or if there's things that should be added to the list. But first of all, I, you, you clearly have a passion for this. Mm. And I think passion and curiosity are some of those keys to successful learning on the job. Also feedback and feedback from multiple perspectives. Yes. Uh, being being part of something big. I mean, you had this opportunity yeah. that's really rare, but you were part of something big. You felt a connection to what you were actually doing. The idea that you were co-located. And then this this the culture that was a sharing culture, sharing where everybody wanted to contribute to everybody else's success. So how did I do? Did I summarize that? That was close? really good. I think that's exactly right. I think that um, one thing I'll add to the being part of something big, though, was um, part of this was probably the way that um, ILM found people to work there and recruited folks. They select for they select for that curiosity. They select for lifetime learners. George often referred to ILM as his school, and that is very is a very accurate description of that place. Um, but Everybody felt that like working on together on something big, even if it wasn't something big we were working on, if you were working on a Pepsi commercial, everyone still felt like pretty much like, okay, we're going to make this awesome because we're ILM. There's an expectation that we deliver really great stuff, but also like we're doing something interesting with this Pepsi commercial <laughs> that no one's done before. So that, that scale, it did help that we were working on, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and, you know, I galaxy quest and all these amazing things to be proud of. There's plenty of things we worked on that we weren't proud of, but we still kind of took that, that we're in this together feeling forward, regardless of the, of the project. I think for, for me, you know, one being a Star Wars nerd, but I remember, you know, watching document documentaries on ILM as they're developing Star Wars. And I was always so amazed with uh, really about pushing 
themselves beyond the com- their comfort zone, which I think you're yes. getting to, which is always trying to do something new. And I think that was kind of the 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 really the beauty of ILM really it as, was as it's always something something to go uh, like push yourself further on and that's where that team the Rebel Mac unit came a came about because ILM had built a fantastic computer graphics pipeline for making dinosaurs um everything that was based <laughs> on making you know literally CG right, creatures for literally yeah. making dinosaurs right, from Jurassic right. Park and so if yeah. we got to a point where you know doing a CG even as bad as the original CG Jabba the Hutt was for the special edition, that pipeline that made Jabba the Hutt was effectively the same pipeline that made Jurassic Park. What didn't go through that pipeline well were hard surface models. Spaceships could not go through that pipeline very Mm. well. And so because John Knoll had tools that he'd been using, because we had other artists who were like, well, you know, I'm using just doing some 3D on my Mac actually is a really good pipeline for doing hard surface stuff. Maybe we should try a parallel project and that the other thing that i think comes out a lot too is jake when you're pushing to do things that no one's done before which is basically the remit for everything ilm did every single time was well is there something we can test it on that's kind of not super expensive (laughs) and so um you know um, and we did that one on Star Trek. We did that on lots of different projects. And George was very, also very good at getting other people to pay for his research and development. <laughs> so a lot of the things we developed then used on Star Wars actually have been paid for by someone else to try something on some other project that we then extrapolate and grow. Um, but that's definitely, you, you were at ILM to do things that no one else had ever done and that no one else could do. Yep. And there's so many parallels to that process and what a learning designer goes through, right? In terms, well, we know all about getting other people to pay for our stuff. That's (laughs) that's key. Uh, But also the the start small, start Mm -hmm. with something, you know, you can do an experiment, run a pilot, see if it works. Hey, Tad, so, so let's kind of fast forward a little bit because I think either consciously or subconsciously, what you did was you took that experience and other experiences you had similar to that. And you use that as you founded the Jedi Masters program mm-hmm. at Lucasfilm Animation in Singapore. So tell us about what that was like to kind of take that on-the-job apprenticeship training approach mm-hmm. and give it a little bit more codification and yeah. structure. Well, it's so I think a lot of it was subconscious um, just because it was ingrained in me. I think it also was helpful, I think, that between leaving ILM and going back to uh, Jedi Master's program was that I had actually been in the classroom at a university and had to learn how to how to structuralize things I was used to um, doing kind of on the fly. So the the remit was basically, as I mentioned, we the studio had basically hired every 3D artist, every character animator in Southeast Asia within you know six months of opening their doors to start working on the Clone Wars, and we needed more artists. And, um, when I got there, the idea that had already been stood up, which was very, very sound. And it did not surprise me that it came out of Lucasfilm, which was, we want to apprentice recent graduates from animation programs. And we want to bring them to the studio. We want to quickly get them up to speed working on uh, you know, to learn how to use our proprietary software, our proprietary tools, any kind of pipeline things. There's a lot of weird arcane stuff that every studio does differently that you just kind of need to know how to do. But 
the idea was we'll get that done as quickly as we can and then assign those apprentices to actually work on Clone Wars. And it was a paid apprenticeship. So we felt okay about having them do you know work and you know scale. The idea was to scale the work for the apprentices so they could start out small and do something background animation, do some props, 3D props, but not kind of hero spaceships right away and kind of grow into it. So that was the original plan. We stuck to that plan, but we learned a lot of things as we went and we kind of fine-tuned and refined and learned a bunch of stuff that we, I don't think anyone expected along the way. And it was exactly taking what I had kind of been through learning how to 3D model and formalizing it. So I think the keys to success there that grew, I think, organically out of what I had experienced was having those apprenticeships, we had uh, tracks that we built. Each cohort of apprentices was between six and 12. So we tried to keep the size of the cohort small, but they're very focused. So there was a, uh, a training group that only were focused on just character animation, not modeling, not texturing, not anything, just character animation, which mapped exactly to what their job would be at the end working on the show. Just 2D compositing visual effects just building assets, just making 3D models and texturing them in the style of Clone Wars. And it was all very focused on, you are an apprenticeship for Clone Wars. Later, we did apprenticeships for ILM and for LucasArts as well, but they were very focused. And that meant, you know, this this was very different from teaching at university where you're teaching students who, they know they want to make video games or they know they want to do animation, but they have no idea what it is. So you have to spend time introducing them to everything. <laughs> And then letting them find where their passion is and then hopefully giving them enough time to build those specific skills. We'd skipped all that. They have a basic foundation in animation and computer graphics from university. Great. Now, how do we take them and get them onto the floor working as quickly as possible? So we had them for um, six weeks or sorry, six months. So they spent six months in this apprenticeship. The first uh, three months were in the classroom. We used uh, our artists from San Francisco, flew over to Singapore. We had our senior artists from the studio there in Singapore to teach classroom classes um, just to get them up to speed. Again, on lots of proprietary stuff and things they wouldn't have been taught in school. Um, what we didn't expect was how much time Tad would spend helping subject matter experts learn how to teach and to develop curriculum. <laughs> um, what we also didn't realize was in a culture where we selected for learners, we also were selecting for teachers. And because we were um, putting folks sometimes in their first formalized teaching role, we also found this actually was a really good leadership development tool as well. So uh, we would have you know, uh, what would look to most people as a fairly normal classroom situation. And, uh, but the difference was if we were teaching students how to model for Clone Wars, when they were learning how to do our style of modeling in a, you know, a typical package like Maya, the project is, no, you're going to take this concept art from Clone Wars and you're going to be modeling Mace Windu's lightsaber. Um, we had them only working on the things that would map directly to what they would actually be working on. And that was, right. you know, that's something that I was always hungry for when I was at a university and every university teacher who has worked in the entertainment industry 
you know, they spend half of their time trying to fabricate things that will approximate what these students might encounter without having access to the real IP or the real tools. In this case, we had all the real stuff. So you're going to learn how to animate characters. Great. You're going to animate Obi-Wan. Go. Here it is. This is the rig you would use as an artist, Um, which also meant after six months, we would assess them, constantly assessing them. That was another thing that worked out really well that uh, I didn't expect to be as important as as it turned out to be. After every week or so uh, with an instructor, all those apprentices got kind of a formal feedback um, assessment that then we sat down and talked to them about so that they could make corrections as part of this classroom. So because the goal was really to get them ready so they would be successful on on the floor working on the show. Some stu- Some of the apprentices didn't do great or realize they don't want to do this. And we, that was a, that was a win for us. We, that was a positive outcome. So we would, you know, they would be released from the program and we would have fewer students to focus on. And that actually worked out much better. And we did that multiple stages, including when it was transition time, when we went from classroom to actually working on the floor, that was when we had kind of our big assessment. I was super nervous. I, the, the, the apprentices were just like, you can imagine coming up to that date, it was horrifying. We yeah. never found a way to make that more humane for them or for me because <laughs> I'm the one who got to give them the news. Um, oh, wow. But, you know, we would get them set up. We're working the whole time with the productions as well to make sure that there's actual real work for them to do that's at a level they can do. And then they got assigned desks. They got assigned a mentor, which became very important. And it's another... Uh, it's another kind of pointer back to my own personal experience. We set everyone up with a mentor. We had two apprentices per mentor on the floor. They would work on the same sequence. They would work on the same shots. Uh, their work would be reviewed like everyone else's. We did uh, change the schedule so that apprentices initially got twice as much time to do their work. And then we gradually reduced that until we got them approximating the amount of time it would take a seasoned artist to work on that. Um, we learned, that's where I learned that uh, pairing mentors and apprentices is like dating. It's it's as much about personality and getting along with a person as it is mapping uh, uh, skills to one another. So we very, I don't, probably not as quickly as we should have realized that uh, we need to kind of check in with the apprentices and how they're, how they're we're getting along with their mentors. Were they seeing their mentors? Were their mentors giving them the feedback they needed? And then very quickly after that, we realized, wow, people don't know how to be a mentor. Okay, maybe we need some support for the mentors as well. So then we started having weekly meetings with the mentors so that they could you know, share what they were learning being mentors with each other and with us. And Tad, you know, I, I'm glad you loop back to that because that's the, that's the thing that really jumps out to me in this story mm. is in setting up the apprenticeship program, it's not just about the apprentices; it's about the mentors. And yes, I know you can. I know you couldn't call them masters because you had two apprentices per mentor. And <laughs> that would make if them you're dark working size, on Star that Wars. That would not yeah. work. Yeah, no, it would not work. So, but uh, it, it's exciting to me, and I think as apprenticeship tends to or is starting again to become a hot topic in the learning field, mm-hmm. it's something that we as learning professionals need to think about. We need to invest just as much time in teaching the mentors how to be mentors and particularly where it comes to the continual feedback. I'm guessing that that was 
something that you really needed to drill in with them because we know that that's challenging to do. It was. And you, you all know how hard it is to make assessment tools for certain things. And, you know, judging someone's kind of aesthetic skill, their technical skill, their kind of speed and efficiency. You know, we built a very simple one to five framework. We started out using A through F and realized very quickly that culturally not everybody knew what that meant. And we also discovered how much discrepancy there was in people's perceptions of a regular kind of grade school A through F system. Sure. Um, But we also found some of the mentors got really excited about doing the assessments and gave us amazing feedback on paper or in a digital file. Um, We could send them surveys and they would fill them out. Some of them, nope, sorry. (laughs) I am not going to take time filling out that thing on paper. But if you want to sit down with me for an hour, I will give you really great feedback about the performance of each of these apprentices. So we started doing a thing where if we saw a mentor who it looked like might be better for, we'll say, hey, do you want to just sit down and book a meeting? And you can talk to us and we will interpret what your words are into our our numeric value system. But you don't have to figure that stuff out. And that worked incredibly well. Tad, building building off of that, what what do you think are the or from your experience? What are the top three or four attributes of a a good or successful mentor? Um, well, the one that we didn't have any control over was someone who had been mentored really well before, so they had a good model of that. Those were the I think those were instantly the most successful mentors, and they understood approachability, that ability to give feedback in a way that um, makes it clear that it's feedback on the work, to give feedback that actually is useful, um, being able to be kind of in tune with the person that you're mentoring. A lot of what really made the really successful mentor successful were, were kind of being a nice person that you wanted to, that you wanted to please and that you felt comfortable asking for help, sharing what they were working on throughout the day. Uh, we didn't originally have the apprentices sitting next to their mentors. We changed that as quickly as we could because what we found was we had like one or two accidentally sitting next to their mentors and their experience was much different. Um, So that it it made that availability really important. And it is like, you're right, Bob, like mentorship is coming up a lot more. um, And the assumption is that you can just produce a mentorship program the way that you would produce classroom training. Um, and, you know, we had success and, and were asked to make a mentorship program uh, more formalized and help the studio in San Francisco develop a mentorship program. And what we found was the more formal you made it, the less successful it was. Oh, interesting. The more you made it like, okay, as a mentor, check in with your, men- your, with your apprentice three days a week meet with them for an hour, discuss these things. The more constraints we put on it like that, the less successful it seemed to be. Right. The more that it's less of a, less of a job and more of a relationship, it's going to be more successful when it's a relationship. Because that's what I was thinking too, is just like the, the whole idea of, of, you know, you're even thinking about the physical space where the proximity. Yes. The ability to just reach out to that individual. So what you're doing is you, you are trying to create a better relationship a foundational trust. So that way, when those situations do arise, it comes out naturally. You don't have yeah. to to format the structure of how you talk together because hopefully that's already happened organically. You're, yep. you're, 
you're talking with individuals. And I think that to me personally is key in any ongoing on the job learning, even if it's not a, an official apprenticeship, Yeah, is that how can you encourage and help these individuals talk with more and more people or at least one person or two Yeah, that where they can trust them and can learn from them. And what we didn't expect, Jake, was that that's, those relationships were stickier than I thought they would be. And it didn't need to be constant proximity as long as they had an initial time to kind of, for lack of a better word, to bond with the their mentor, that that relationship then could better bear still being successful, but at a distance. Yeah, I think I think overall, just if I step back of just not only your experience as with the Jedi Master Program, but even before. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing a lot of key themes, and one theme, I know Dana especially, I'm thinking about your research that uh, you'll eventually uh, publish out here, uh, Learning the Future, and that, you know, the the idea that everyone's a teacher, and that the, mm -hmm. you're you're pretty much ingraining teaching into the culture, yes, and the sharing, the the, the learning, and the mentorship, of course, is a is more of a formal approach to it. However, the way that you structured it becomes more natural, and I think that's awesome. And the the other thing too is is even when I think about the the Jedi Master Program, and even with your experience trying to, you know, learn how to to build R two D two, is is that um, the term that comes to mind, at least a durable learning principle for us, is um, is contextualize, right? mm -hmm. you know, and your ability to take reference for what you know you knew from the physical world mm -hmm. and apply that to the digital world, mm -hmm. and then kind of see the two comparisons, and then the what I thought was uh, interesting in the Jedi Master Program is that even for them too, that they're coming from the university, they know kind of the books and playing yeah. with whatever they've done there, but then to jump in and then to, again, think about what they previously known from the university and then try to apply it to a real world setting. I think that just makes it even more of a more powerful learning experience across the board. Hey, you know what, gentlemen, I realize we are like way over time and we haven't even gotten to gaming yet. So here's my suggestion. Tab, let's have you back on the show at I some like time in the near future. And we'll do yes. a whole nother show about games for learning and everything like that. But for now, we will let our, our listeners go. And if they want to join us on our Star Wars after show, we will really get into the force a little bit. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll have you back again soon. My pleasure. I can't wait. Okay. So for everybody, uh, this has been Bob and Dana and Jake, along with Tad. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next time on the Learning Geeks podcast. Salute. Thanks, everybody.